Amen. Uh, I love paradoxes. Okay, A paradox is something that at first glance feels to be a lie or feels to be a contradiction. A more precise definition would be a paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded and true. A paradox. Now the Bible has such paradoxes. One of the reasons I love the Bible and biblical theology more than philosophy is that it requires us, it requires the reader, requires the recipient of God's Word to humbly accept that God's ways are higher than our ways and that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And the Bible, as we study the Bible and as we are shaped by the Bible, the Bible simply bends our minds with the contours of truth. We don't bend the Scriptures based on our limitations. Our mind is bent and strengthened simultaneously by the contours of biblical truth. There's a big difference. And so the question that kind of rises to the surface when we come to the, come to the Scriptures is that are we going to be a kind of people that affirm all that the Bible says or just what some of the Bible says based on our lack of understanding? This applies both to groups of Christians corporately, but also to you individually and to me individually. Will I approach the Scriptures and, and believe all that the Bible says, even if there are some things that I don't understand, or am I arrogant enough to believe that apprehension of the truth is a requirement for something to be true? Apprehension of truth is not a requirement for something to be true. There is this thing called algebra. And apparently, it's a true discipline. I know nothing about it. And then if you're really intelligent, you go into this thing called calculus. Okay, so apprehension of the truth is not a prerequisite for something to be true. And the scriptures today are going to... Uh, blow our minds. We're going to look at a passage that's unbelievably clear, but is impossible un to understand completely. So, without any further ado, let's dive into the impossible. Sound good? Let's do it. Chapter 45, again, we're going to read verse 1 through 5a. Some of this is a repeat, repeat from last week. Then Joseph could not, could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So he stayed, so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And, whom, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. Now remember in the story of Genesis, we find ourselves with Jacob and his twelve sons, and Joseph who was sold into slavery by the eleven sons. He was sold into slavery, and a group of Ishmaelites were the ones who purchased them. They bring him into Egypt. 
He's into Egypt and he gets bought by a gentleman named Potiphar, who was the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's house. And after a few years with uh, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, uh, who was very attracted to Joseph, uh, wanted to do some inappropriate things with him, and Joseph refused. But he left his jacket, his coat, his garments there, not the coat of many colors that was left for his father when he was way back in Canaan. Not that coat, but the new garment was left and used as evidence against him. Even though he was innocent in the matter, he was condemned for the sin of somebody else yet again. Potiphar's wife got him thrown in prison. While he was in prison, he ended up interpreting dreams. You remember the story. For those who haven't been here with us, bring you up to speed. He had, uh, there were dreams. He was, in the, uh, he was in the jail, and there was a cupbearer of the king, and there was also the baker. Both had dreams, and Joseph, uh, God gave the ability to interpret those dreams. And then the baker got killed, and the cupbearer got to go again and be the cupbearer of the king. And two years pass again, and the cupbearer... The cupbearer remembers after Pharaoh has a dream. Hey, Pharaoh, I know of a man who can interpret dreams. Calls out Joseph out of prison into the company of the king. Well, time goes on. A famine comes. And here comes the brothers. And there's the big reveal moment. He reveals himself to his brothers in this moment. And then Joseph began to say some pretty astounding things. The first affirmation when Joseph begins to speak to his brothers is that human actions matter and human volition is real. He says to them, you sold me into Egypt. And then he says again, because you sold me here. In 5a, he affirms twice that the brothers did in fact sell Joseph away from them. This was their action. It was on their hands. They did this action. Human volition is so important. Today we live in an addiction society, addiction culture, where the problem with people isn't their personal responsibility. The problem with people is everything that happened against them. And certainly difficult things that have happened against you, the environment that you grow up in, the sins that have committed, been committed against you, play into who you are as a person. But it does not take away your responsibility as a person. Substance abuse, drug, alcohol abuse has never caused anyone to be addicted. People have got addicted to drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever it may be in this world. People are responsible for the decisions that you make. Texting can go really bad if used wrongly, but I've never heard a person yet say, let's get rid of texting. Texting and driving, a lot of, it's illegal, but texting isn't bad. If you're addicted to texting, it's not texting's fault. It's your fault. Just like it is in this world. Volition, choices, personal responsibility are a reality in this world and in the, they're a reality in the world with God. We make decisions and those decisions are consequential. The decisions were consequential with the brothers and Joseph, in fact, was sold into slavery. But that's not all of the story. Again, let's get invited invited more and more into this impossibility. Because Joseph continues to speak to his brothers in 5b. Here's what he says. For God sent me, he said, excuse me, and don't be angry or distressed with yourselves because you did this. Because God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me, Joseph says. In verse 8, he says again, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, when we introduced the story of Joseph, we went to this passage. Just this remarkable statement, these remarkable statements that, that Joseph makes. It's amazing. Joseph went to bring comfort to his brothers. And the way he brought comfort to his brothers was by pointing them to God's 
activity that worked alongside of their choices and their sin. He tried to bring comfort to their heart. He was at such a place that he wanted to lift the burden from them of their sin. He wanted to not lift their responsibility because he said it, but he wanted to comfort them, comfort his brothers because they had already admitted their sin that they had sold their brother into slavery. So he wants to bring comfort to them. And so he appeals to what God was doing alongside of what they were doing. Now notice, the Bible tells us that it was not God who sold him into slavery. That was the brothers. Oh no, God was up to something totally different. God was sending Joseph. The brothers sold. God what? Sent. He sent Joseph. He did not sell Joseph into slavery. The brother's plan was to get rid of him. God's plan was to send Joseph ahead for a specific purpose in Egypt. God had a plan. What did Joseph see? What do we see? Well, at first, Joseph brought some, or didn't, I'm sure, see all the details and the contours of all the things that God God was doing. We are privy to that because we have the scriptures. In our lives, at any given moment, Uh, We are tempted to think, God, I think you are literally on vacation when things are bad. Even though we know that he's present, that he's near, we somehow buy the lie that God is absent and distant. That he doesn't care, and I'm alone. And if things are going to get better, I better get to work. I I don't have time to trust him. I've got to get busy fixing this. Okay? So, here we see... This happening. So I think we have to question when we're in times of difficulty, okay, what's going on here? Am I going to trust that God is at work or am I just going to try to get to work? What, what's going on? So the application of this, this point, can really, it can really be applied to our pain. Because I want you to hear this. God did not sin against you when you were sinned against. People did. God did not sin against you. People did. God didn't sell Joseph. He sent Joseph. The brothers sold Joseph. But God is working alongside with whoever, of of whoever sinned against you, doing only what he can do with that sin. He has purposes with it that are somehow beautiful. Now, I've said this before, and we have talked about this quite a bit, even through the book of Genesis and going back even into Ephesians, talking about some of these paradoxical statements. Humans are working and God is working in the same action. Okay, we can't figure all of that. That's the impossibility of, of trying to figure all these things out because the, the lines here, there's statements, and the, what's, the challenge that's imposed upon us is are we going to try to pick one or the other? Say, no, it was only the brothers or it was only God? Are we going to try to say humans are responsible, therefore God is not sovereign, or God is sovereign, so humans aren't, aren't responsible? And this will solve a lot of theological debate. And if you can get away from labels and uh, who you are or what you are or what, you, what camp you want to be in or this camp or that camp or whatever, and just get away and just say, I just want to believe all that the Bible says. You can get through so much stuff if you can just say, I believe this and this and I don't know how, but I'm not going to reject either one of them. Because the scriptures say, they say that Joseph's brother sold him and that God sent. How all those things go together I I don't know. But this is not sloppy intellectualism. This is actually the simple childlike faith intellectualism, which is far more intellectual than any other philosophical system that tries to say this or this. A system that humbly submits to the Lord and says, God, I trust that your ways are higher than my ways. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24 is one of the most helpful passages in all of the Bible for this. And I referenced this in a sermon that I preached on, uh, out of Ephesians about a year ago. And uh, James, I remember you making some comments saying, okay, this came together, those last five minutes of that sermon really came together from this passage. And I want to reference this passage once again. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 23, 22 actually through 24. I'll just read it if you want to save time. You don't have to turn there. But men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with many mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered... Up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosening the pains of death. So the human action in this was grotesque. The worst sin in human history isn't the sins that have been committed against you. They were the sins committed against the innocent son. Vile sin to crucify the innocent one who would die in the place of his accusers. Okay. What the people did, you crucified and killed. They were lawless men. But here it is. In the most grotesque sin in human history, done against the only innocent man in human history, the only truly innocent one, this gross sin was also predetermined by God to be the way in which God would raise him up and then loose the pains of death. Only God can make the grossest thing in history be used for something that's the most beautiful thing in history. And if God did that in the person and work of Jesus, the only truly innocent one ever truly sinned against, and make something that's more beautiful than anything has ever been known, salvation of sinners, then we can, if we can't figure out the whys, and if we never figure out the whys, we can say, God, I trust that you're doing something beautiful here, and I don't know, I don't know what. And I don't have to know what, but I trust that you're at work. I trust that you're doing something beautiful. Joseph invites us into this mystery and he seeks to bring comfort, and I think it would be appropriate to seek to bring comfort to you today and to myself through God's Word to say God is working and He's never once at any moment been absent from your life or your pain. And He's never once been absent or He's not abandoned you in, this, in the very moment of your worst pain. He loves you and He is working. In 6-8, through eight, it's interesting because we get to see the purpose of why back in Genesis, God did this to Joseph. Why would God send him to Egypt? Because yes, he didn't, he didn't sell him, but he did send him to a place that was going to be in prison. And God was with him in prison. He was faithful to the Lord, and then he would go to prison. And in fact, we are told that suffering is a part of God's plan for our lives, for his glory and our good. But the famine was going to go continue going on for five years, and we get insight. Joseph tells us why God sent him ahead. Look at verse 6 through 8. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me, says it again, before you to preserve for you a remnant of the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not, God, you, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me the father of Pharaoh 
and Lord of all the house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph's conclusion in this is that God sent me here for a very specific purpose. He sent me here to preserve a remnant of the people. The purposes of God are going to flow through him in Egypt. And as he has begun to understand some of the bits and pieces and the puzzle pieces begin to come together, he realized that he was being used by God for God for the benefit of others. And being used by God for God for the benefit of others often comes at a great personal cost. It came at a great personal cost for Joseph. What does the purpose of God look like in your life? Here's a staggering question. Are you willing to be used by God? Am I willing to be used by God for His glory and the good of others if it costs me pain? Or would you rather say, no, God, use me less. Just make my life more comfortable. Because God's purpose is always advance. Not always, almost always. Throughout this globe, missionary endeavors, it almost always happens through pain. If we didn't have martyrs, the church has expanded through the blood, the seed of the martyrs, the blood that was spilled. There's a quote that actually sounds better than what I just said somewhere out there about that. Difficulty in life, it's how we grow. It's how He shapes us and molds us. And if we're to use, be used by God for the good of this world, it's going to cost us something. And are we willing to have that happen? Now notice the connection here. Joseph begins to emerge from the pages as a type of Christ. And the reality of this begins to come to the forefront. And we see that Joseph is sent by God to preserve and provide for his sinful family that happened to be chosen by God. Joseph is sent ahead to do work in a foreign land, to serve other people, to live for the good, and then will end up through this life that he lived in this foreign land providing for other people. Ring a bell? Because God had a purpose with Joseph, and because Joseph's purpose was coming to a reality now that the brothers were here, he wants to spring into action. It's all coming together for him. Wait a second. This is it. So go get my dad. I want to start preserving life. I want to start saving. I want to start helping. And that's what he says. In verses 9 through 15, we we see that he tells them to go get my father. And he tells them, go tell my dad everything. I want my dad to know about this. And bring everything back here and dwell in the land of Goshen. And he says to them, I will provide for you. Again, these images of what will be seen more clearly in the life of Jesus. And then we see before they're sent out that there's a big hug and crying fest with the brothers. The brothers are finally able to speak. In verse 15, look this. Look at this. He says, And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, the brothers talked with him. The brothers were speechless until this moment. He begins to tell them everything, kind of unfold it all, what God was doing. And finally, there's this moment where An embrace happens. Weeping happens. Brothers embrace. And they start crying. And finally, after that, it says, the brothers began to talk with him. Now, a remarkable moment, I can imagine. Are they like, uh, uh, oh, was it it bad? Was there any times it was bad? Or were you always here? Were you always living in Pharaoh's 
Were we always in charge here in Egypt? Or I'm sure they would feel a little bit easier about things if they found out that Joseph was always in charge here. I wonder if he said, you know what, guys, thanks a lot. You know, I, I don't know. But you just wonder, what was going on in those conversations? But Joseph and his brothers began to speak. So he says, go get my dad. Now, it's interesting... Before they go out, we get some words from Pharaoh. Now, this is fascinating. And all the pieces just really, again, just begin to kind of float together. Look at verse, uh, verse 16 through 20. It says this. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts. Go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of all the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to stay. But do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives. And bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods. For the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. On the scene explodes the pleasure of Pharaoh. The pleasure of Pharaoh is explicitly stated that it pleased Pharaoh. What must Pharaoh have thought of Joseph? When the news reached his ears, he was overjoyed. Oh my gosh. Joseph has found his brothers. It pleased his ears. The most powerful king in the known world was pleased because he knew and loved Joseph. The pleasure of Pharaoh landed on Joseph's family because of Joseph's integrity in the king's court. Pharaoh's pleasure leads to action. He tells Joseph that the best land belongs to his family. Spare no expense. Go get them. Bring the chariots. Bring the best horses. You go back, get all the family, and bring them here, and I'll give you the best land. Joseph, it's not just you that's going to be treated well. I'm going to treat them like they're my family. You go get them. They're going to have the best land in all of Egypt. Not the junky land, not the leftover land. If we've got to kick some people out of there, get out. This is Joseph's family's land. The best land, Goshen, is where they will be. It's fascinating. The family from Canaan deserves nothing from Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't owe them anything. They don't have any right to stand up and say, Pharaoh, we need or deserve anything from you, nor dare would they do that. But they had a substitute representative who had access to royal wealth. If you're certain of the hope and reward to come, let me just ask you, if you're certain of the hope and the reward to come, not fearful of the future, fearful of death or eternity, if you're certain of the hope and reward to come, how would that change the way you live now? If you knew everything will be okay, what are you going through right now? It's going to be all right. I mean, really, you knew it was going to be all right. Not just all right, better than okay. How would that change the way we live today? You got money problems? You got 99 problems. Jay-Z did at one point. How would it change the way you live if you realize that everything is going to be okay? The God of the universe is my Father, and He's pleased. 
The brothers are well supplied. They're sent away with the treasures of Egypt to go get Jacob. (laughs) I wonder what Jacob thought when he saw this caravan coming his way. Look at verse 25 through 28. So they went up to Egypt, out of Egypt, and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. And I will go see him before I die. Joseph gets the good news. The brothers tell Jacob, I, I, we don't get insight into this, but if I was Jacob, I would want to wring the necks of the rest of my sons. How dare you? You told me he was dead. These 20 years I've grieved, wondering, wondering how my son Joseph died. I knew he died by beasts, but I, I've longed for him for 20 years and grieved for him for 20 years. Doesn't say any of that. He hears that his son is alive and his heart turns numb. Couldn't believe what he heard. For the beloved son that had been dead for such a long time in his mind is now alive. The son, the beloved son, is alive. He became revived in spirit and said, let's go see Joseph. Fathers out there, if this is you, what's going on inside? I mean, I haven't seen my son in 20 years. I thought he was dead. You kidding me? I, I'm a ball bag normally. I would be even more. I would be weeping, dancing, jumping up and down. I have no idea. 20 years, Joseph is alive. Jacob is elated. I want to go see my son before I die. This old man, this old man, life returns, packs up everything. The story continues in the next chapter. In verse 1-4, through we see that Joseph responds through worship. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Let's just pause. How thankful would you be to the Lord to hear that news? God, thank you. My boy. Get to see my son. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. He said, here I am. And he said, I am the God. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down to you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now you have word from the Lord that not only is Jacob, not only is Joseph alive, but you're going to see him. And his hand is going to be the one that covers your eyes when you die. He worshipped. Jacob brought everything the family owned. We see in the rest of the chapter, we see the rest of the chapter, everything was packed up. And then finally, we see in verse 18, I believe it is, or excuse me, in verse 26, that there were 66 persons in all, all the family of the brothers, all the livestock, everything that they had, all of Israel, so Jacob and his sons, All of them went together with their families, everything they owned, all their belongings, and they head on their way to Egypt. And now we get to this joyous reunion. After all these years, we see a father and son embrace. He sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph in verse 28 to show the way before him in Goshen 
and they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, Goshen. He presented himself to him, fell on his neck, wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen the face, seen your face, and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers in my father's household who were here in the land of Canaan have come to me. Full circle. If you could see this on a screen, I mean, it would be the epic, epic story, the epic journey. It would be an award winner. It would be a joy to watch. All of Israel makes its way to Egypt. 400 years, Israel would grow and grow and grow into a company of millions in Egypt before God would raise up a prophet named Moses to lead them out. The people of God are now in Egypt. I want to, for a moment, consider seven points. Consider the work of God. Number one, God sent Joseph to Egypt at 17 years old giving him dreams after giving him dreams about his future. Two, God was with Joseph in slavery and in prison and made Joseph successful as a slave and as a prisoner. Three, as we continue to consider the work of God, as the years roll on, God gave dreams to the baker and the cupbearer to the king and gave Joseph the ability to interpret those dreams. For after two more years, God gave Pharaoh two dreams and then brought Joseph out of prison to tell Pharaoh what they were all about. Five, God puts Joseph in all in charge of all of Egypt. Six, God sent a famine to bring Jacob and his sons to the point of desperation and then brought them to Egypt to stand before Joseph. Jo- seven, because of who Joseph was, the brothers were saved from certain death and brought into the riches of Egypt under the pleasure of Pharaoh. God is at work. What seems like chaos is by design. He is not absent. Final thoughts. I wrote this out. I wanted to get this right. There are questions scattered throughout these final thoughts. Do you see the good news? In Genesis 45 and 46, because of who Jesus is, Jesus, our substitute, the pleasure of the Father is upon us. Because of who Joseph was, the pleasure of Pharaoh was upon his brothers. Living for the pleasure of people is a cruel substitute for the pleasure of the Father. It's a cruel substitute, never comes through. Jesus is our representative who came to earth, his Egypt, willingly, to serve sinners and obey the will of his Father. He lived among us and would die because of us. We didn't simply sell our Savior, but we participated in his death. Yet Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, secured the pleasure of the Father for all those who would cling to him. We, therefore, are saved from the barren desert famine life of living for ourselves as if we are independent from God. We are saved into spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. God gives us not simply the riches of Egypt, 
but the forgiveness of sins now and the freedom from guilt now, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, we are fully known, fully known, and fully loved. Nothing about you is hidden. Not one thought, not one deed. Not what you did at spring break in college. Not one thing that you've been hiding your whole life. He knows it all and He loves you. Not only are we called the sons and daughters of God, but the actual riches of earth will one day be given to us. Not to be misused as we so often do now in this earth, lacking the character to properly use God's goods, good gifts, but perfectly used for God's glory and our joy. We will have eternal happiness with Jesus and His people. Laughter. The restoration of all things. I can imagine fires, fire pits, not like last night. Stories around the fire, food, laughter, life, no guilt, no shame. This is the best kind of story. And friends, here's the truth. It's real. It's true. You're going to be fully happy forevermore. It's all going to be okay. How happy is fully happy? How great of an existence is there with no worry? No anxieties? No fears? It's going to happen. Guys, you can come up here. So that's true. Since everything I just said is true from God's Word, in so much as I said it from God's Word. How does that change your life right now? How does it change your life right now? What does it do inside of you? What does it induce in you? Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would, uh, you would just help us bring, our, bring to our attention things that need, to be, that need our attention to it. And uh, God, I just ask that You would right now even bring heaven on earth, that we would experience being fully known and fully loved. This reality that's so true. Even though we sinned this week, even though we stumbled this week, or even though we had victories this week, either way, apart from any of that, how we performed or didn't perform, how we submitted to You, Holy Spirit, or didn't submit to You, Holy Spirit, we sit here, sons and daughters of the living God. And Your pleasure is upon us. And even if any of us are under the disciplinary hand of you. It's, it's in love because you love us and you're bringing us away from self-sufficiency into God-sufficiency. So in this moment, help us just to trust you. And God, I thank you that when we stumble into self-sufficiency that we are forgiven people anyways. That you forgive us for trying to run around and fix things ourselves. Because of what Christ has done for us, his life, death, and resurrection, we're forgiven. Help us to worship. Help us to trust. I trust that you will. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's worship. You stand with me. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I can
hand for contempt on all my pride. from his hand, his hands, his feet, sorrow and Such love. 